Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland podcast. We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to intentionality, diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy! Good morning to all of you. My name is Kurt, and I'm a pastor here at Cascade. I'm going to head over here and grab this. You saw it, but I said it. So, Here is what we're going to do this morning. We are in the second week of a message series called Biblio-Idolatry. And the reason why we're talking about this is, um, and kind of recognizing that with all things in history, a lot of things that we call historical um, usually reflect like 50 to 100 years. Uh, And especially if you go into like Portland, And you're like, wow, that's a really old historical building. It's on the historical registry. And then you go to Europe. You're like, oh, (laughs) that's just someone's apartment in Europe. Here, it's like a sacred space that we have to protect and hold on to. And a more recent idea or context of history isn't a bad thing at all. But what's helpful is to understand that it is just a more recent context. And so what we want to do this morning, when we talk about kind of biblio-idolatry and the way that we've gotten um, to a place culturally, especially within Protestantism, of elevating the Bible above the place of God. That's what we mean when we say biblio-idolatry. The reason why we want to uncover and talk about that is to see how was the Bible viewed in the whole history of the Christian church. So we want to go back and kind of take a journey through to see what are the different ways, not to condemn the current lens and view, but to uh, provide more context so that you can say, what is your relationship with the Bible? It might be that your current relationship with the Bible is strained or on pause, or it's pretty severely damaged. And maybe going back further in the history of this and finding other ways that people have interpreted and interacted with the Bible can give you permission to come back to the Bible and see it with new eyes. Maybe it's to continue to view it within the context and lens that you have. That's fine. What we want to do here isn't to say, our current lens is bad, so let's pick up this new lens and this one's good but it's rather to diversify our portfolio and say there's actually lots of ways to view and engage and interact with the Bible. Not because we say so, but because it's all within the history of Christianity. Uh, And that's really the heart of this message series. If uh, Some of you are going to love this and talking about history. Some of you are going to hate this. Some of you are going to be everywhere in between, and that's fine. But the reason why we're talking about it isn't just to be like, oh, cool, I know a little bit more about Christian history and the interpretation of the Bible and some cool names of people that that wrote these kinds of things and studied them. It's to have you be able to reflect on what is your relationship with the Bible. Right now, what is your relationship with the Bible? Would you say that it's strong and you are reading it daily? Would you say maybe weekly, maybe monthly? Maybe, uh, I don't know, I'm vaguely aware of where the Bible is in my house. Or if I scroll enough pages, I might find that app that I downloaded once. And all those, all those interactions with the Bible are fine. We're not trying to say this is the goal is for you to engage with the Bible in this way. But rather, how do we reevaluate our relationship with the whole thing? So where we want to start this morning is we're going to start with the first to the third centuries. Uh, And when I say that, we're talking about the time of Jesus. 
um, up through a, a kind of significant moment in 300. Um, so when we talk about this, this is kind of the earliest understanding. Now, this probably isn't a surprise to most of you, but it might be. Um, earliest Christianity was Jewish. It came from Judaism. Jesus himself was a Jew. And so the systems, the understandings that people had for religion, that they had for their worldview, that they had for faith, all came from a Jewish perspective. So it's actually really helpful for us to say, uh, that's right, I love this image too, because I imagine that Charlton Heston is pointing at the Ten Commandments and saying, watching you. (laughs) Eyes on you. Uh, When we talk about the the Jewish interpretation of the Bible, um, we want to say that this was how the New Testament writers, that Paul certainly would have viewed the Torah, his sacred text, in the same way. And what are the different understandings? The first is that in the first to third century, uh, Jewish interpretation actually had four different lenses that they would have run it through. So the first is Peshat, which is that there was a literal reading of the Bible, that you would read the story and you'd say, what did, what did just these words describe? What's here? Um, and there's a, a very popular kind of biblical interpretation that does that now, that says just read the words of the Bible as they are literally written, and you can understand what's there. Don't bring anything else to it. Don't bring your ideas or what you were taught that it said. Just literally read the words and what does that say? That was the first. The second was Remez. Remez is an allegorical um, interpretation of the Bible. So when you think of allegory, you think a story that has a deeper uh, meaning or another meaning. Uh, usually pointing towards understanding of spirituality, morality. Um, so tortoise and the hare, good allegory. Uh, Animal Farm. It's an allegorical story. If you were to read uh, Animal Farm literally, uh, (laughs) you would miss a lot. And by the way, when I was in high school and people would tell me, like, this is what the author was talking about when they wrote this. And I remember being like, I don't know, maybe this wrote a story about a farm. And you guys are just being, you're just reading too much. You nerded out about it. And and you're like, no, I actually think it's about a police state. I'm like, no, it'd just be about pigs and chickens trying to live in harmony. Remez is an allegorical understanding of scripture. The next is Derush, and this is a homiletical understanding. I know those might be two words that you're like, "Ah, what are we doing? Okay, homiletical is a study of the words and how you would teach it. So um, within the Jewish Torah, it's not just the Torah, which is the sacred scripture, what we call Genesis through Malachi, Um, But that had this whole other uh, complementary document called the Midrash, which is all the teaching that was done on these stories and verses and scriptures. And for uh, in the Jewish mindset, it's not like, well, there's the Torah. And then if you want to, it's the companion piece that these went side by side. And that would be a Darusha understanding of the scriptures. So if you think of it, how would you if you've ever taught something, there's a certain understanding when you're learning it to study it. But if you have to teach it to someone else, there's a different way that you read and understand and um, take in the information. And this was a form of biblical interpretation. And the last would be sod, which would be a mystical understanding. Mystical isn't like, hey, let's go take some shrooms and just see what happens. Uh, A mystical interpretation is what is your first person experience of reading the scripture? Um, So again, in more kind of present day, American evangelical Christianity is actually a lot of this. It's like, well, I was just reading the Bible, and this is what happened as I read it. This is what it stirred in me. This is what it means to me. 
And this is actually a form of Jewish interpretation. Now, here's what's interesting. Um, in these different levels, they weren't ranked. It's not like start with one, then you go two, it's all right, then three, and then coming in last, we got sod. No, these were just four lenses of interpretation. And so um, a book that I really enjoy, it's by uh, Lawrence Kushner. It's called God Was Here and I, I Did Not Know It. It's looking at the story from the Old Testament of Jacob wrestling with God. And what Lawrence Kushner does within this Jewish way of understanding is after he tells the story, the additional seven chapters are he's taking different rabbis' interpretation of that same story, and he's talking about how they would have understood it. And he puts all of them side by side. Not like, and here is the understanding of the scripture, but here are different understandings of it. And this was a kind of robust part of Jewish spirituality and the way that they interpreted the Bible or their sacred text. That for them, um, I like to say for Protestants in the world today, the Bible is a library. And for Jews in the first through third century, the Bible was a playground. That it wasn't something that you went and studied. It was something that you engaged with, that you interacted. And your understanding of what it meant would change over time based on different lenses and ways that you would interpret it. Um, so one good illustration of this, or it may not even be good, it's just an illustration of this, we actually see in the Bible itself. So um, there's this passage in Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah, which would be in the First Testament, the, the, the Torah, the Jewish Scripture, um, it talks this whole story about um, God as a potter. You think of being at a potter's wheel and kind of molding the clay into something. And then at times it kind of gets wonky and you might smash it, reform it, and go again. And so Jeremiah is using this imagery. Uh, Jeremiah is a prophet, is kind of speaking into the Israel worldview and saying, God is having this interaction with us right now. And while he uses this kind of metaphor of God as the potter and the, the people as clay, he then explicitly states why he's using this in verses 7 through 10. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warn repents of its evil, then I will relent and not reflect, inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I intended to do for it. So in this uh, metaphor, what what Jeremiah is saying is that the, what, what God has intended as God is um, at the potter's wheel and forming this, at times, if it starts to get, it will be smashed down and reformed. And basically, the reaction of the community is how God is engaging with the community and what will happen to it. So you kind of understand that metaphor. Paul references Jeremiah 18. He's like, just like this, the potter. But look at what he says in Romans. In Romans 9, he says, One of you will say to me, then what does God, why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall it, what is form say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Paul is using an image of God at the potter's wheel that is being used to talk about the relationship and the reforming of communities based on their actions and behaviors in Jeremiah to say God as the potter is forming some of us for different uses than others. 
It's talking about the plan and intention of God over humanity and um, who we are. Now, if you just utilize a literal interpretation of the Bible and the way we talk about the Bible today, they would say, you can't do that. You can't take the words of Jeremiah when Jeremiah is very specific about why he's using that metaphor and reference it and use it for a totally different metaphor. You don't get to do that. But nobody would say, yeah, you know that Paul played fast and loose with the Torah. He was just like a crazy, I don't know, a little, a little bit of a heretic. Everyone that would have read that has said, yeah, that's what you do with the Bible. That's how you understand and engage and you use these different metaphors in other ways. And you reference it. This is what was so fun. In our mindset, and it may not be your mindset, but in a lot of our mindsets, we're saying, what is the interpretation? If we're going to use this metaphor, what are, what's the way we're going to use it? And he would say, what? The reason why he was referencing that other use is he was like, look at all these ways to understand God. And look at all these ways to play with this metaphor. Look at these ways to understand who God is and what God is doing. And this is really significant. Because Paul didn't believe that there was one metaphor or allegory that perfectly summed up the nature of who God was. So Paul was providing a template. Come play. Come have fun. I played in this and created a new kind of understanding and metaphor, and so should you. And we're going to talk through the kind of the rest of history where everyone just gets to make whatever metaphor they want of God. Well, yeah, obviously. You can't control what metaphors people make for God. But ultimately, the nature of God needs to be reflected through these metaphors. And there are ways that we kind of understand who the nature, the essence of God is that informs the metaphors that we create. But in that framework, we need more metaphors. We need more understandings. We need to, to not just get locked into one way of seeing God, but lots of ways of seeing God. I want to talk about Origen and Augustine. These are uh, a couple of ways that they would have viewed the Bible. And you can see uh, Origen is 184 to 253. Augustine is 354 to 430. Um, the way they did that is Origen said, since we are body, soul, and spirit, we should interpret the Bible literally, morally, and spiritually. So what Origen said is for every text, you would go through it and you would have multiple um, engagements and interpretations of that passage based on how it impacted you. So he would say in the body, you would interpret it more literally. What's, what's this actually saying? Then morally, what does this mean for my action and behavior? And then what does this mean for my understanding of who God is and my relationship with God? And again, you're, you're doing lots of different ones. There wouldn't just be one. And Augustine went as far to say, hey, we should do the literal interpretation, but it's not very useful. Uh, the Augustine would say that literal interpretation is understanding a sign, but to hang out and, and just like understand the sign would be like going to Pasadena and being like, no, that sign says Disneyland next left. I think we're there. This is Disneyland. It doesn't live up to the hype, but here we are. They'd say that the, the literal understanding is a sign pointing to another reality, which I actually think is a really good metaphor for the Bible in general. That if we are being invited to understand who God is, to worship the Bible as the ultimate authority and not understand it as a thing that is pointing at who God is, is to miss the point. And a lot of times, it's like you can't use God as a weapon, so we use the Bible as a weapon. 
can't use God to silence people and to diminish them. So we use the Bible to silence and diminish people. And when we understand that from the beginning, uh, early on, there's a different interpretation and interaction with the Bible, you can see, oh, so this isn't the way it's always been, that literal didn't rule the day, that it wasn't just what is this actually saying. The last thing I want to talk about in this, because it's uh, an interesting bit, is we have a map here. And you can see very generally that this is Egypt at the bottom. This is the Alexandria region, and Alexandria was a city right there. Then you have Antioch, which is up there. Uh, this is, would be present-day Israel right here. We can see uh, Jerusalem, Damascus. Antioch would be up north in, um, in Syria. That these had two different schools of understanding the Bible and faith. And so uh, this led to some pretty significant divides in these first couple hundred years of Christianity. Uh, one of them being that in Alexandria, they believe that God, uh, Jesus, humanity and divinity was one inseparable thing. And in Antioch, they believe that God's humanity and God's divinity were a relationship that engaged with each other, but they were separately held uh, understandings and identities. And you might hear that and fall asleep. Back then, they heard that and killed each other. Uh, they had fierce, fierce debates over the nature of this, and this really ramped up in a, in a section we're going to talk about next. But here's what I want you to do. If we could put back up the slide of the four different ways of biblical interpretation, what I'd love for you to do is to just be able to turn around to the people that are around you. Again, the most important thing is to make sure no one's left out. Be able to introduce yourself, say your name, and here's what I'd love. If you can, looking at those four different understandings, the, the literal interpretation, just what is this really saying? What's the text saying? To the allegorical, so how does it help us understand other concepts? Homiletical is, what, what would I teach about this? How would I understand if I had to communicate it to someone else and some of its meaning? And last, the mystical, or what does the story do to me? What's my experience of it when I read it? I'm interested in you being able to share what is one that you're kind of drawn to and what's one that you, are, you have a more uh, troublesome relationship with? And it can just be complicating. Say, I'm not so sure about that one. You're like, I don't like that one right now. But I'm interested, when you hear these different lenses of interpretation, what kind of resonates with you as something that feels maybe you've experienced or you're interested in? And what's one that you're resistant to or you've had a difficult relationship with in the past? So yeah, if you can go ahead and turn to the people around you and share those two things. All right, I'm interested in hearing from some of you. Uh, if you feel comfortable just kind of shouting it out, what, were, what are the interpretations of this that are resonating with you right now? That are interpretations that you're like, yeah, that's one that is connecting with me now or I'm interested in. Anybody? What are the ones that are resonating with you that you shared or you heard someone share? Mystical. Thank you. Yeah, anyone else? Allegorical? Yeah. Anybody homiletical? No? Yeah? Anyone literal? Couple hands? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then what about the ones that are difficult, that you have a, a more troubling relationship with? Literal. Allegorical, someone say? Yeah. Mystical? Anyone having a difficult time with mystical? Yeah. And then anyone having a difficult time with homiletical? I love it. That's so good. We should be able to celebrate that. 
that the goal here isn't to, when we talk about this within this Jewish interpretation uh, understanding, it isn't to say, all right, well, let's really hash it out together and decide which one are we going with. That within a community of believers at any given time, there should be people that are deeply resonating with something, and we say, that's awesome. And there are people that are really troubled by other ones, and we say, that's awesome. Because when you're really troubled by one, you say, well, I'm glad you have some options. Right? <laughs> it's almost like there's certain strands of Christianity is like, ah, oh, there's only one, and if you don't do that, time to go. That becomes problematic. That becomes really damaging because, again, it's okay to put that lens on the Bible, but you can't do that saying that that's the lens the Bible puts on itself. Are you with me? You can say there's only one interpretation of the Bible. That's fine. You are well within your rights to do that, but know that you're doing something that the Bible is not doing. The Bible is not requiring that of you. Now, we talked about Alexandria and Antioch and some of their different understandings on the nature of who Christ was. And this was a lively debate and something that different uh, theologians, these people that were writing and thinking about it, were sending letters back and forth and were discussing it. And then 300 happens. And in 300, this man named Constantine, who is campaigning in a war um, to become the emperor of Rome, has a vision at night before an important battle of the Milvian Bridge, sees an image of the cross, and hears a voice say, by this sign you shall conquer. So he has his Roman soldiers put the cross on a shield. Let that one sink in for a second. The cross, a tool of punishing people that are not for the Roman government, and they put it on the front. It's like putting an electric chair on a tank. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Or a waterboard on a tank might be a better illustration, that they put the cross on the shield and they won that battle. And from that point on, Constantine said, you know what? It's time to take Christianity out of the shadows. Now, to say that Constantine became a born-again Christian that went on TV and sold his, his story is not true. It's not the way that the Roman mindset in that time would have understood faith and religion. Now, within the Roman religious system, there's already a plurality of gods, and you had a plurality of gods, so you could pray to them for different things. But what he was interested in doing was making Christianity a packageable, understandable um, religion that could stand alongside all the other religions in the in their, uh, world. So what that meant is this lively theological debate between Antioch and Alexandria had to be settled we had to come up with one understanding. Because you can't say, hey, you can come be a Christian. They're like, well, which one? These people really seem to disagree. So uh, how many of you are familiar with the creeds? Anyone? Like there's things that you read. We're going to look at one. It might kind of jog some bells. This is the Nicene Creed that would have been written after the time of Constantine. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into being, things in heaven and things on earth, who because of us men and because of our salvation came down and became incarnate and became man and suffered and rose again on the third day, ascended to the heavens and will come to judge the living and the dead. 
and in the Holy Spirit. If you can stop there. This is probably the part, if you've ever read this, that you've heard before or familiar with. Also, it says the living in the dead, but the more like kind of cool OG version is the quick in the dead, uh, which makes a great movie title. So it was this understanding that you would say that when we say Christianity, the Nicene Creed is what you would repeat, and you would say this Christianity. And they brought a bunch of different theologians to basically decide what are we calling Christianity? And at these councils, the Council of Nicaea created the Nicene Creed, people were publicly called heretics. Like, go watch some C-SPAN about what's happening in Britain today, and that's a pretty good understanding of how these Nicene councils were going. A lot of shouting, a lot of mocking, and a lot of like, get out of here, heretic. Like, you, you lost. You lost the debate, and you're out of here. And a lot of these creeds were responsible for the divide between Eastern and Western Christianity. Uh, the reason why I say that is there's a lot of our understanding of Christianity today comes from the Western mindset. Um, and there were further kind of splits that happened between Constantinople and Rome, papal authority, which means like where the Pope lived and who was like got to make the calls about all of this. But all of this would have been precipitated by this need to, if we're going to take this religion and put it within state-sponsored religion, if we're going to marry this religious belief with the most powerful government of the day, we got to clean it up and we got to tell people what it says. And this is my favorite, because I've never read this in the Nicene Creed, but this next bit, this is actually in the Creed. This is the end of it. But for those who say, there was when he was not, and before being born he was not, and that he came into existence out of nothing, or who assert that the Son of God is of a different hypostasis or substance or created or subject to alteration or change, these the Catholic and Apostolic Church and empathizes. Basically, the end of it's like, and if you don't agree with all this, goodbye, you're done. It's like, you don't belong, you're not part here, we condemn you as being something outside of the church. Why is this significant? If you think of the Jewish biblical interpretation where you have lots of different ways to interpret scripture and that this is a relationship that you're kind of engaging in, the creeds and the understanding of bringing it into the state-sponsored religion really eliminated a safe place for disagreement. That we can't have dialogue about that now because it might just mean that you're a heretic and you got to leave. And so it brought a whole new flavor and understanding into this religion and to what Christianity was. Now, I'm going to fast forward quite a bit. Not that really significant things didn't happen, but we got an hour. Let's get to the Reformation. So we have kind of Eastern and Western Christianity, but over the years you have, the, when we say the Catholic Church, we think of it kind of as a brand, but really the Catholic Church was the church universal, which is really fun because it wasn't. Uh, what I mean by that is like really early on, it was like when we say Catholic, we mean all of us. You mean like, oh, those Eastern Orthodox Christians? Nah, not them. <laughs> you know, the Catholic Church. So <laughs> you had this understanding though, but it would have been this formalized understanding of this is all of us together, the dominant understanding. And over time, you're not going to believe this, but over time, in this religious system, the system kind of became more important than God or Jesus, and the preservation of the system became more important than God or Jesus, and the religious system was actually used to bolster power, and it became a tool to oppress certain people. I know it's shocking, unbelievable, but it happened a long time ago, all right? 
So specifically what this would have been is that in the Catholic Church, the popes were using the understanding of the relationship with sin and people to say that you're sinning a lot and you're probably going to hell. If you've watched The Good Place, no spoilers, but it's like the third season. It's like, you're probably going to hell, but good news, you can buy your way out. So you buy these things called indulgences, and if you were wealthy, you could basically get like a pre-sin coupon. You can be like, I'm good now. I don't even know what I'm going to do, but I can mess up pretty royally and still get into heaven. And the reason why they did this is because if you've ever gone to Europe and you visit these beautiful cathedrals, ta-da, that's what indulgence is bought. And the other thing that would have been true of this time, and so there's like a time-sensitive thing that was going on during the time of the Reformation as well, is that the Bible was not like it is now. The Bible's everywhere. You can go to Safeway, where they just got like a rack of magazines and four books, and the Bible's probably one of them. And it's like all these different interpretations. Anyone can go read the Bible and read the particular version that resonates with you. At this time, there was one Bible, and it would have been read in Latin. The Latin Septuagint, which was an interpretation of these Hebrew and Greek scriptures. And so, you would come into a church, and I would read from you in the the Bible in a language you didn't understand unless you studied it. And we'd be like, we did it. We church today. Now, what's really significant about this is that if you were hearing the Bible read to you in a language that didn't make sense, you couldn't fact-check the priest. You couldn't be like, hey, this whole indulgence thing kind of seems counter to this whole what Jesus is talking about. And they're like, I don't know about that. That's not what I read to you in Latin. So along comes a man who is training to be a religious leader in this named Martin Luther. And he says, now, and and let's be clear about this, because I hate the great man, great woman theory where, like, one person rose out from a heap where everyone else is like, Catholic Church is awesome. And he's like, no, it's not. Any cultural movement comes from lots of people talking for a long period of time about things that are going on and working together. Martin Luther has become kind of the touchstone for this, but he represents countless men and women who recognized the insanity of the Catholic Church and did something about it. But as famously noted, he put these 99 theses that just said, these are the problems with the Bible. Or, I'm sorry, not the Bible. These are the uh, problems with the church. And so what he did in one of his huge driving uh, movements, and the reason why we're talking about all this, is that American Christianity, and especially as we experience it in 2019, is deeply Protestant. Luther launches this Protestant understanding of God, the church, and the Bible. What he does is he creates his own uh, interpret, his translation of the Bible called the Luther Bible, uh, which is the Bible written in German. He's in Germany. So then you could take the Bible and give it to someone in Germany that has no theological training, but they've learned German, and they could read the Bible on their own. There is no overstating how transformational this was to the religious system. And it hit at the same time that the printing press was created, so you could cheaply and quickly reproduce lots and lots of these and give them out to everybody. So now it wasn't the elite and the hyper-educated that would read and understand the Bible. It was for everyone. So Luther was passionate about saying, first he would say, he didn't say leave the Catholic Church. He said stay within it. But then you should be in a small group, 
uh, you should be in like a, a, these groups that meet during the week, and then you should read the Bible on your own. That basically he was saying, go to church, be a part of that system, but fact check the priest. Read it in your language and come to understand it. And ultimately, he was called a heretic. He was hunted to be killed, and it led to this divide. Now, kind of a, a quote that gets into this biblical interpretation. We're going to read from Philip Melanchthon, who was, uh, he followed after Martin Luther. And he said two things. A, the bi- scriptures must be understood grammatically before they could be understood theologically. And the scriptures have but one certain and simple sense. So ultimately, we give the Bible to everyone, and they're saying, you read the Bible, study, kind of understand the rules of grammar, and you're going to read it, and we're all going to walk away with the same interpretation. Which, you giggled at the appropriate part in that. (laughs) But at this point, it made so much sense that the corruption of this was because it's being controlled in power. But if we give it to everyone and we read it, we're all going to walk away with the same simple message. We're all going to understand who God is and where God is doing. And kind of two different interpretations that would have come from Luther um, and the way that he interpreted the Bible and John Calvin, who is another uh, formidable kind of theologian that shaped a lot of the ways we understand faith today. Uh, Luther up there on the left, um, he said everything that we read and understand about the Bible needs to come through the lens of Jesus Christ. So it led to a lot of like, well, Jesus is everywhere throughout the Bible, and all of these stories are prophecies about Jesus. They're all the way we understand it. Initially, what Luther would have meant by that is you don't read an Old Testament passage about war and not understand the peaceful nature of who Jesus was. That there's no section of scripture that you just get to, well, I interpret this thing here and I don't understand who Jesus is. What's interesting is Calvin, who became kind of a dominant theologian following that, would have said, no, the ultimate lens that you read things through is the sovereignty of God. That God's in control of everything. And God is kind of understanding and moving through everything. So we don't understand it through the lens of Jesus. We understand it through there's an all-powerful God, and if you disagree, you don't understand And so these kind of different ways of interpreting uh, Scripture have woven their way through our more recent Christian understanding a lot. That a lot of times people would say that your understanding of God, you just don't understand God's sovereignty. God's in charge and has the right plan, and everything is viewed through that lens. So if you ever experience suffering or hardship, they're like, yeah, but God's in control. That would be a Calvinistic kind of God's sovereignty. And initially, Luther would have been very much an understanding who Jesus was and what Jesus was doing was transformational. All right. The last thing we get to cover is talk about, is because we're talking about our lens here is USA. USA. Uh, I don't know why they did a human hand and an eagle head, but something about the rest of this makes sense to me. Uh, There is... Culturally, and especially in the beginning of the USA and America, there's huge American patriotism that has deeply informed how we read and understand the Bible. So let's talk about, like, quick history of the United States. The United States is a broken away part of the British Empire. That basically we did no longer wanted to have that kind of taxation, and we fought back what was really a pretty impossible war. But because of our distance away from England, that we were able to fight for independence. 
And that created a system where there was a whole new understanding of who we were that was differentiating itself from these more colonistic um, countries. Or so it would seem. <laughs> and a lot of times what we see in the United States of America, and even in the Constitution, is this idea that say, hey, all people are created equal which is a deeply uh, biblical idea. That when Paul says, but in Christ there is no male or female, slave or free, Jew or Greek, he's saying that there's this understanding that we're all in this together, except what was happening in the United States of America that allowed it to be a country that it was, was slavery, which is helping fund and create it. We're all created equal. Not you, but we're all created equal. The reason why I bring that up is that kind of cultural blindness to understanding is deeply pervasive in the American system. Where what we mean when we say all is all of us, however you define us, and our thriving. And it creates a view of scripture that reads and interprets things through the lens of and what we're going in this is the more recent understanding of America is the largest military superpower in the world and one of the strongest economies in the world. So money and capitalism and war to keep peace are the dominant trends in the United States today. It helped create. The safety that we experience right now are created by those two poles. And when you put those two poles or you understand your stance in the world today through those polls and you put that on scripture, it creates some very interesting interpretations. Right? How do you read from the, if, all throughout scripture, you have oppressed people groups. There aren't large swaths of the Bible that are like, we're on top and it's awesome. We've kind of done everything right by God. We have a booming economy. Things are looking pretty good for us. That's not the language of the Bible. Now, you add on to it a kind of Protestant understanding that you understand it grammatically first, and literalism has kind of trumped all other interpretations. You take a literal understanding of the Bible, and then you give it to a military superpower that is dominating the world in capitalism, and you go, oh, no. Now you're going to take on an oppressed view for the unoppressed. Uh, un, uh, now, not entirely. I don't want to redo the thing I was just saying that is typical American, where we say all of us, but we don't actually mean all of us. But I mean that the dominant culture, and whatever the dominant culture has been throughout the United States, has taken on the Bible and Scripture, has been a dominant force throughout our country's lifespan, and said, we are oppressed. We are being attacked. And here's what becomes really, really powerful. When you believe you are being attacked and you're the military superpower of the day, uh-oh. You're going to do a lot of violence with an oppressed mindset and all the tools of war in your chest. Think of it this way. If any one of you was attacked on your way out of here and you just had yourself, you would use your physical force to protect yourself. If I gave all of you a gun and you were attacked, many of you would think of using the gun. In the same way, a country that has access to untold amounts of nuclear weapons and military bases all around the world, hey, why is Hawaii a part of the United States? Have you ever flown there? It's not close. 
It's about military. It has informed our relationship with the world. Why do we have so many people? They're like, yeah, I was born. My parents served in Germany. There's a U.S. military base in Germany? Huh. That influences how we read and understand the Bible when you combine it with literalism. So, what I'm saying is being aware of that. Stepping back and saying, actually, there's this whole history of Jewish interpretation. There's this whole thing that said who's in and who's out. When we get to 300, it becomes a state-sanctioned religion. There's this whole Protestant thing that says, hey, just give everybody the Bible and we're going to be okay. And there's this whole American thing that says, yeah, America first. And has utilized capitalism and warfare to get that freedom and to get that position in the world. And then you throw in the Bible, not just as a book, but as the book, it can tend to do a lot of things that it wasn't intended to do. And it can create a lot of harm. And this is what I think is so scary. It can take people that see that and understand those and have them walk away from the Bible because of how it's been used. Instead of saying, no, 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 no. This book is for liberation. This book is for freedom. This book is for looking people in the eye and telling them that they are made in the image of God and have significance for being, not for doing. And we walk away from it because how it's been used by so many in so many destructive and violent ways. Instead of being able to say, no, that's actually not the only interpretation of the Bible. And people will say, yes, says who? And they're quoting Spurgeon. Be like, the theologians before Spurgeon. There are other theologians. <laughs> Sorry. I like how like deeply biblical nerdy people are like, <laughs> fantastic joke. <laughs> Sorry, that's me too. <laughs> but you get to say there's actually lots of different interpretations of the Bible. And here's what I love about that. The reason why we uh, go to theologians is to end a conversation. I want to empower you to go with theologians to open conversations. Here's one of my favorite understandings, kind of going back to this Jewish one. I kind of want to close with this. There's a lot of conversation today that are like, do you believe Jesus is the only way, or are you a universalist? Do you believe like everyone gets into heaven? And usually today, anyone that has a more open understanding of interpretations of the Bible are quickly labeled a universalist. And it's like a slam. It's like, yeah, you don't really belong in the club. Think back to that Council of Nicaea. Bye-bye, you're not a Christian. Did you know that the earliest theologians, Origen, Augustine, they were universalist? And you're like, whoa, Gregory of Nyssa, universalist. How could they possibly be universalist? Do you know that sweet little passage where it says, in one day, every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? They didn't read it like it was a WWE stance where Jesus is like, bow down, that's right. Oh, you thought I was another God? No, no, no. It's me this whole time. You go to hell. You go to hell. You go to hell. It was Jesus saying, one day every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Welcome in. Welcome in. There's a universal recognition. I'm not here saying, and that makes universalism true and that other belief isn't valid. What I am saying is if you call yourself Christian, you stand alongside people that believe that Jesus was the only way and people that believed everyone gets in. And you know what they use to reach that conclusion? The Bible.
So how do we reclaim the sacred text that means so much? How do we engage in it in a way that is free and fun? Let's make it a playground again. Let's make the Bible weird again, where we don't read it and nod our heads and say, like, yep, that's what it said, and say, no, they wrote it down because it's weird. These are weird stories. And we should be talking about that. Because I think the nature of the time of when Jesus was alive is echoing again today. And these stories could mean so much if the people who have been trained to walk away from it and been told you don't belong understand, actually, I do belong at this table. And a lot of people are alongside me. Would you pray with me?